Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Hello, bookworms. How are you? Ready for another deep dive into the depths of a celebrity memoir here on a podcast where us two best friends are recapping the memoirs of celebrities so that no one else has to read them. And with it, sharing a healthy dose of opinion. I thought you were going to say into the depths of hell. And I would say that is an accurate statement of a lot of the places we have to go with these people. (laughs) And let me tell you, I don't know if you guys read Dante's Inferno. But when Virgil takes Dante down into hell, he has a couple opinions. And because Virgil is his name? Yeah, like Virgil, like the Greek philosopher. Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> is that true, Ashley? I think we all should have taken a little bit of a grain of salt from some fucking dumbass named Virgil. What about Virgil Abloh? Oh, I guess he's cool. I'm just saying, much like Virgil, if we're taking you on this journey, we're also going to have a couple of little comments and remarks. So if you guys are looking for a commentless, remarkless journey, I might suggest a different map. You know what I mean? Yes. But if you're looking for one that's remarkable, stick around, baby. Ashley. Yes, Claire? If you were a celebrity that was writing a hellish little memoir, what would this circle of hell be called in your memoir, aka chapter? My chapter this week would be called Motherfucking Goldilocks. Because I have been enduring an absolutely painful process of trying to find a mattress that isn't ruining my life. I got a new mattress over the summer and it was hard as a goddamn rock. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to exercise that 100 day return policy and return it and order a new one. So I ordered a new one and it got delayed because of the hurricane and the old one got picked up. So then I had to sleep on my couch for a week which was not comfortable. And then the new mattress came and I do think this one's a little too soft. And so I really am just like trying my best to be a well-rested individual so that I can stay looking young for as long as possible and for no reason besides that. And it's just like hard. (laughs) Anyway, I think I'm going to try again. I think I might return this mattress and get a different one, but be a little bit better about the overlap policy. They can't resell these mattresses, right? I think they donate them. Is this an insane thing to be doing? I feel like this is my rug. No, no, no. I think you should get it because they are expensive and you do keep them for years. But I'm just thinking about like the 92 mattresses in your wake just sitting in a <laughs> landfill somewhere. No, they donate them. You should get a donated one that somebody else didn't want. I'll try. I feel like this has become my rug saga where I've got this expensive thing. It's just too expensive to not like it. I have a theory about expensive things so that the more they cost, the less you'll ever be happy. The more you have to be like, well, if I spent this much, I have to love it this much. And there's just a limit to how much any human being can love any real object. That's true. Because the problem really is if you're judging it by quality of sleep, you're not somebody who sleeps well ever. I know, but I thought that a comfortable mattress would fix that for me. See, I think we're getting to the root of the problem here. I think there's a deeper emotional turmoil that you need to address, which is like a lifelong anxiety problem. And I don't know that any mattress could fix that for you. I'll tell you what, that's my problem with therapy is that it's very expensive. And how happy could that object make me? That's not an object. That's an experience. I hate experiences. I love things. Okay. Well, good luck to you. (laughs) Oh, you guys, someday I'll be fixed Mm -hmm. and there'll be no more podcast because I'll have fulfillment elsewhere. Claire, if you were to write a memoir about this week's descent into hell... What would you call it? This isn't going to be interesting, but I'm like trying to figure out my schedule because the problem with me is I am addicted to my phone. And I always thought my dream would be to be like a podcaster, a comedian. It turns out what I really want is to be on TikTok all day. And not even making TikToks, just watching the TikToks. I just want to be watching TikTok like a Wally character. That's like the top of my Maslow's pyramid for me would be like one of those people that just sits in a moving chair. Oh my God. If I could watch TikTok on an iPad, you'd never see me again. If you could tie an iPad to a visor. And just have TikToks going all day. And I didn't have to swipe if they did an auto swipe feature. I wish that they would do that. I am so fucking grateful that they don't do it because right now what has happened to me is swiping is giving me like carpal tunnel. So I'm trying to get out of the house. I feel like that's step one. Now I'm trying this thing where I go straight from the gym, like I shower and get dressed at the gym. And then I go straight to like a cafe to get work done there because I do think I'd be too ashamed to watch TikTok that often in public. I do not have that problem about watching TikToks in public. I'll just watch TikToks free balling, no headphones in the street as I walk. <laughs> I do remember that turning point in my life when I used to be like, who are these crazy people on the trains playing Candy Crush with Bollymock? And now it's me. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, you're a real New Yorker when you cry in public. No. You're a real New Yorker when you watch videos with the sound on for everyone to hear. Everyone in New York City knows how deep I am on berries and cream TikTok. 
and how badly I want to get out. All right. Should we get on to this week's topic? You guys, I am so excited to talk about this week's memoirist. Okay. We have got a real sensation on our hands. A new book. It was published in 2021. Unfinished by Priyanka Chopra Jonas, or as I call her, Priyanka Chojo. I like just Chojo. Claire, what did you know about Chojo before we cracked the pages of this book? As I've learned now, I am fully the victim of the Priyanka PR bus. I became very aware of her right at the exact moment they wanted me to. This is going to shock you. (laughs) I did see her in Baywatch. (laughs) I can't believe you saw Baywatch. I always thought that movie just never came out. I fell asleep during it, so I can't fully tell you what (laughs) happened. I guess I've always been aware of Priyanka. I was on like Indian TikTok for two months. (laughs) And let me tell you, the people of Indian TikTok, they were ripping her apart. I like can't remember how I felt about her before I got onto those TikToks. But when people make fun of her on TikTok, it was propaganda that worked on me. I feel like there was a real Priyanka backlash. I've heard she has some very problematic politics. Interesting. And then I had heard that she was associated with skin whitening stuff. So I'd always been like very beautiful, clearly very successful, but problematic. I was talking to our friend Usama Siddiqui of Mango Bay podcast. I was asking his opinion on her and he was like, she's so annoying and she's the worst, but we're also so proud of her. Do you remember when I was dating that Indian guy and we mentioned Priyanka and how she was kind of annoying and he was like, How dare you say that? She's my cousin's 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 cousin. Yeah, he was like, she's the hardest working, most successful, most beautiful woman on the planet. And I was like, I mean, that probably means she's annoying. And he's like, no, it doesn't. (laughs) He was like, everybody loves her. It's universal. And I was like, there is a side of TikTok you have not gotten to, my friend. (laughs) Ashley. Yes, Claire? What did you know of Priyanka? I knew that she was very famous and that I'd never seen a single thing that she's ever been in. And that... She married Nick Jonas. So she's 10 years older than him. I thought the age difference was even bigger. Like, I remember when the news broke that they were dating. Everyone was like, 108-year-old Priyanka Chopra is dating 18-year-old Nick Jonas. (laughs) I didn't really know very much about her actually at all, other than the fact that she was hot and famous for stuff I hadn't seen. Okay, so let's get to Priyanka, even though we can never get to the end of this. Why? It's unfinished. (laughs) Priyanka Chopra was born July 18th, 1982 in a part of India. It doesn't really matter because that bitch moved constantly. Let me tell you, she did not stay in one place for more than like six weeks. So Priyanka's two parents were both very successful doctors. She comes from like a super well-educated family where the women's careers were pushed just as much as the men's. Her mother was a doctor. Her dad was a doctor. I think her grandmother was even a doctor. She said that science runs in her family's DNA. They were all very smart and they all really put academics first. It was really important. One thing that is pushed across in this book more than anything is that not only is Priyanka perfect, but let me tell you, her parents are perfect too. She describes her mom. Her mom was gorgeous and chic and well-dressed. Spoke nine languages. She was a pilot. (laughs) It was a lot. And then her dad was also a doctor who was in the army and they started their own hospital together. She's like, he was handsome. He was 6'1". He was a musician. He was a poet. He had abs. You're just like, okay, okay. Yeah, he like loved the arts just as much as he loved doctoring. Her parents were so in love. She goes, I dreamed of having a relationship just like theirs, one of true partnership and of romance, poetry and music. Who could have known that all that childhood imprinting would actually manifest in reality, just like those self-help books say it will. So she talks about having this large, loving, perfect family. And she was like, I was so in love with my dad. I was so enamored with my mom. I wanted to be just as glamorous as her. But I think it's interesting because in the very beginning of the book, in the preface, she says this quote, I've always felt that life is a solitary journey, that we are each on a train riding through our hours our days, our years. We get on alone, we leave alone, and the decisions we make as we travel on the train are our responsibility alone. So I was like kind of shocked that this is how she opened it, that we're all alone on this journey because when she starts talking about her parents, she's talking about how much she loved them, what partnership they have, and how they're like so romantic and so in love. They work together, they live together. She has this like incredible upbringing, this tight-knit family, and I'm like, okay, so where does this like solitary life come from? And then it very quickly becomes clear. Yes. So not only do they have this beautiful family that loves each other and adores each other very much, they do a lot of taking care of each other's kids, sending kids to live with cousins, with grandparents, just kind of bopping around. Since the parents were army doctors for a while, the dad would take a job 
in a city kind of far away and just move away for six months to a year or whatever. So when she was two, both of her parents had jobs that were not close and she just lived with her grandparents for a while. Then at one point it was just her and her mom. Then she had a brother who was eight years younger than her. There's just a lot of moving around. And then at one point she talks about how her life was perfect. Her parents were perfect. They were wonderful. They never treated her like a child. They always let her have independence. She says travel wasn't just mom's thing or dad's thing. It was our thing. And when they traveled together, just as in our home together, they were completely inclusive of me. They never treated me as merely a child. They treated me always as a person. But then when she's seven years old, she talked back to her parents and was just immediately sent to boarding school to learn manners. And she felt so extremely abandoned by this. In reflection, I think she says there probably were a lot of moments of me being kind of a brat that led up to this boiling point, but it really felt like I told my dad he couldn't have chips and then I was banished from my family. When they dropped her off, they told her she was just touring the boarding school. She was seven years old. And then they were like, here's where you're going to sleep. And then they're like, okay, we're leaving now. And then her mom would come and visit her on the weekends, but it only made her more upset. So her mom was told by the school, don't come back for six months. So she stayed there for six months at seven years old, not seeing her family. The thing is, she was truly traumatized and afraid to make a fuss about anything because she's like, last time I was a bitch, they sent me away from my family. So one time she threw up in her sleep and was too scared to tell anybody. So she fell asleep and barf and then (laughs) cleaned it in the night so that she like wouldn't get in trouble again I don't it was really sad yeah she said all I understood was that I was alone and that everything was different now that's about being left at boarding school at seven when we first were reading it you were like oh it's intense that they like leave her alone so much and I actually was like I don't know I'm really on board with sharing child responsibilities with extended family like I think the nuclear family is so bad for women her mom had her at 21 and when they left her at two it's because they both I think had to keep going on to get more advanced medical degrees yes and I'm like it would be so great for women I think if it was more normalized in the U.S that your parents could come live with you or that you live nearby your parents. See, I fully agree with that. But I think the leaving for long periods of time did weird me out. But they said when they were in school, they would come back every weekend and see her. And then on like Christmas breaks and like the summer breaks and stuff, they were together. And I do feel like that's why her mom got to be a doctor. Men still do that. Like men go on business trips all the time. Men go and join the army. I mean, men do not feel that daily. Oh my God, I can't take a big risk and leave my family for a few months because who's going to raise my kids. So I think that mindset only hurts women. But I will say when she went to boarding school at seven and they just dropped her off and she was crying every day and it was like six months later, I was like, okay, this is different to me. And seven is young. I mean, it's one thing to have your parents raise them. They raised you. It's the same thing. And you're seeing them on the weekends and it's not a big deal. But to not see your parents for six full months at seven years old. That's crazy. Especially because she did not like it. Like she did not want to be there. Her mom came back the next week and she was like, please don't leave me. (laughs) But it was because they were trying to give her the best education they could. Right. And I think now she sees the value in it. Now she's like, it made me who I am. It made me an independent person. So I think that this book has a really enormously positive spin. I still don't think that she is happy that that happened, but I do think she sees the positive sides of it, which are that she developed a good sense of independence, manners, good English speaking skills. She goes, My years in boarding school ended up helping me to be both adaptable and fiercely independent. So I look back at them as a priority item in the tuck box of my life. Being on my own at such a young age taught me how to find my own solutions. And she also says it taught her to compartmentalize difficult moments and events in her life to focus on the next amazing thing that I wanted to do and move on without always fully processing whatever just happened to me. And I agree. This book, there's not one vulnerable moment that ends badly. It's all... And I look back on those moments and I think I'm grateful. It's like a gratitude list written into a novel. It really was like an Oscar acceptance speech written into a novel. That's how I felt. At the end of every three or four pages, it was like, and that is why I'm forever grateful to my parents for making this decision. And that is why I'm forever grateful to my aunt for taking that risk. A lot of gratitude. Anyway, so she ends up leaving boarding school because she gets typhoid fever. Twice. Twice. And they were like, typhoid me once, shame on me. Typhoid me twice, you're kicked out of school. So she goes back to school. She has a lot of fun. It's like regular school in her hometown. It's way more casual. She's having fun with her friends. She says she kept a lot of the formalities that just like made her feel organized. I think she liked. At 13 years old, the summer before eighth grade... Her and her mom took a trip to the U.S. to Cedar Rapids, Iowa to visit her aunt who was there with her husband and two young daughters. She was a computer scientist and they went to visit for a week or two. At the end of their visit, they took a tour of the high school and they were like, wow, Priyanka, isn't this great? What if you went to high school here? And Priyanka was like, oh my God, that's such a good idea. And then she's like, do you think dad will go for it? And she's like, I'll call and find out. And sure enough, the dad says, okay. So it turns out her mom had communicated with the sister beforehand and been like, what if we just sent Priyanka to America for high school and then brought her there on that trip? 
trip to be like, hey, would you want to do this? It's your decision entirely. But it was completely predetermined. I guess if she had said absolutely not, I do not want to do it, they wouldn't have made her stay. But I mean, it is weird the way that they laid that out. Because one of Priyanka's big things is that she was so independent and her parents gave her so much choice to choose how her life played out. But then you have a story like this where she's like, wow, they just gave me this option and I picked it and it turned out the whole thing had been pre-planned. They had to get her a student visa through the government. Like that's a lot of planning. Yeah. And I think it was just like a weird manipulative thing because then when she was being left in the US, her mom said, remember, this was your decision. And if you change your mind, dad and I will always be there to come back home to. But that is weird to be like, remember, you chose this, this thing that I set up and laid for you. You picked it. So that was in the May of 1995. When she was there, she had a lot of fun. I mean, it was a primarily white school, obviously. In Iowa. So it was pretty conservative, both politically and socially. She was definitely one of the few Indian kids there. But she had a really good time. The couple she was staying with, her mom's sister and her mom's sister's husband, each ended up getting jobs, one in Indianapolis, one in Baltimore. Her and the two cousins she was staying with went to go stay in New York City in Queens for a few months while her aunt got settled in Baltimore. She goes, we were sent to New York City to live with my mother's brother and his family while Masi settled into the new apartment in her new job. This was not just an example of the commitment to extended family that is seen in most Indian families. It was a part of the pattern in our specific family encouraged by Nani, her grandmother, who was adamant about her daughters having every possible opportunity to further themselves in their careers. She's like, if you need time to focus on your studies or establish yourself in a new job, take that time. The family will always tend to your children. And I do think that this is a good example of why it's for the women, because in this family specifically, the husband had already left for his new job. There was no question that the minute he got his new job, he would leave and the mother had to stay behind and take care of not just her two kids, but the cousin. I guess I like that they did this, especially once she got a little bit older. And I do completely understand, especially for women, how important it is to establish their careers in this way. But I think it's weird when they're younger to sort of just bop your kids around because I think that during those extremely developmental times, having some consistency is nice and useful But I don't know. I think that America could stand to do a bit of both. I guess I would say, like, when you get down to numbers, how many families in the U.S. actually even have that, like, nuclear standard of you see both your mom and your dad every single day. Do you know what I mean? There's, like, so many different types of families. And so if there was just this precedent set that that wasn't the expectation, and because that wasn't the expectation, your family was more likely to step up and help you, that that would be better. Because it's not like every U.S. family has two parents and two and a half kids. So she goes to Queens for a couple of months and she loves it. She loves like the diversity. She loves the New York City experience. She makes friends. This is her favorite place to live in America. And then unfortunately, she has to move back to Indiana. So Masi is settled in Indianapolis with her new job and she has an apartment there and the kids and Priyanka move back with her in Indianapolis. And in this school, she gets a boyfriend. They don't really do anything, she says. Do you think this is true? She says they like barely held hands. I don't know. I bet they kissed. I bet they were at least touching their bodies on each other. (laughs) Well, lips are bodies. But her aunt flips the fuck out. So they find out that she's hanging out with him between classes, after school. They're doing everything they possibly can to keep her apart from this boy. And once again, after school special style, she looks back on it and is like, listen, my aunt was charged with taking care of me. So her rules were much stricter than it would have been at home because if your parents fuck up with you, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if the aunt lets something happen to her, she can't let her go running around with a boy. She says, her big hearted offer changed my life and put me on the course I'm following today. Thank you forever, Mossy. I'm sure if you're Mossy, if you're her aunt, you like love that chapter, but none of it's that interesting. It's also, it reads so fucking slow. It's like a page of how Mossy changed her life. It very much reads like a combo first person Wikipedia entry Oscar acceptance speech. Yeah. So then she gets sent to Boston to live with some other family members. Who were there doing their medical residency. This is a very diverse school, but a deeply segregated school. And they at that school decided that the brown kids were the ones to be bullied. She had a clique that was other South Asian people and they were the group that got really intensely bullied by the other people and she just could not take it. She says, what's ironic here is that Newton was so much more diverse than Cedar Rapids in Indianapolis where my school was largely homogenous and predominantly white. So why were my friends and I harassed for being different here where difference hypothetically should have been better understood? She couldn't take it. So she calls her mom and the minute her mom heard it in her voice, she was like, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. And she came within three days to Boston, got Priyanka and they left. And it's a two day flight. So to be there within three days is... But she does 
that's ultimately looking at it as a positive thing. And she ends this chapter like she ends all the other chapters. Each of my parents is an example of the kind of parent I want to be someday. One who sees their child as an individual, someone to be raised to live their own life thoughtfully, intelligently, independently, and empathetically. And so she's obviously grateful for the experience and happy that her parents let her and encouraged her to do it. So the other thing that happened in America is that she was smart there because the Indian schooling system and the American schooling system are a little bit off from each other in terms of literal timeline of the year and also rigor. When she got to America, she was already about a year ahead in school. So all of her classes were so easy because she'd already learned everything that she was learning. Then she gets back to India for her last year and a half or so of high school. And she is so far behind. There's nonstop tutoring. I guess you had to like pass these board exams in order to get into college. And she is really struggling to get her shit together to take these big exams. But the other thing that's important is because she's come back from America to start at this school, she is basically a celebrity there. It is so cool that she had gone to school in America and everyone at school knows who she is. It's a very big deal. So she had come back and she had gotten very beautiful while she was there. She says when she landed, her dad didn't recognize her. My hair was long and full and I'd grown several inches. With my big wedge heels, I was almost five foot ten. That is a line that made me laugh. It is very funny to me to be like, I grew so tall. And when I was in heels, I was six. That's not really part of the hype. But yeah, she was tall and she was gorgeous. When I saw how people were looking at me as if I was a fantastical, brightly colored unicorn, I realized that I wanted to see myself that way too. And because of all the hype she got, she's like, I wanted to grow into the hype. And she's like, I wanted to feel interesting and unusual and amazing to feel that I was deserving of people's gaze. I wanted to leave behind my fear of being different, the quality that caused trouble for me in America. From now on, if I was going to be an anomaly, I was going to be the shiniest anomaly around. I had no idea if I could pull off that sort of attitude or not, but I was sure as hell going to try. I mean, that literally created the person that she is today, which is fascinating and a great attitude. She talks a lot about superpowers in this book. Her dad will tell her that like individuality is her superpower, but then she'll be like, being different is my superpower. She loves to call out equality and be like, that's my superpower. But her dad did say from the young age, because they moved so much, he was like, don't see it as losing all these connections and relationships. Instead, see it as an opportunity to reinvent yourself every time. Yes. So I do think Priyanka is like the queen of coming in and reinventing herself bigger. Yeah, he would tell her to be like water, flow in and fill the space. If she came in and she saw that there was hype, she was going to live up to the hype. Yeah, which is impressive. So in this school, she became kind of popular because she was this exciting new creature. And also she was bold and participated in a ton of extracurricular activities. And she dressed very American. She wore like the tightest jeans in town. That was kind of her claim to fame. And they also had this thing where soon it is revealed to them that she's very beautiful. And so here we see the little hints of that where she'd be like, boys started following me from home and dad got so nervous. He almost got me a security guard. And she's like, but we didn't know why. We thought maybe it's just because I was a girl. <laughs> she pretends that she she's all vatted them or something, but they had no idea. They thought she was cute. They didn't know she was beautiful. She also mentions these extracurriculars and she was talking about how good she was at extracurriculars and said, occasionally I had the thought that the positive attention I got from all my extracurriculars was a gift from some divine presence who had witnessed the difficulties I'd had in Massachusetts. A way of saying, you sure had to put up a lot of crap. Here's something to help make up for all that. But mostly I didn't overthink it. So that is one of the craziest lines in this book to me to be like, listen, I was so good at extracurriculars. It had to have been divine intervention, but I wasn't trying to like think too hard on it. What? (laughs) Well, it's funny because it also comes right after the sentence. There were kids who thought I was being opportunistic or that I was just showing off. I suppose I can see why some might think that. You can really see the attitude beginning in her high school days that permeates and is why I was like, I don't know. I get a weird vibe. Yeah. I don't think it's good that I find that annoying. Like, I don't think she's a bad person anyway. I think if you're good at something, you're allowed to be confident. But she definitely has like, I'm confident and I don't care who knows it quality, which isn't likable. It's not evil, but it's not likable. I think that's what I learned from this book is I did know that she had a reputation as someone who was annoying. And reading this book, I don't begrudge her having that personality. I just wouldn't want to know her. If she went to high school with me, I can't stand her. Right. But this isn't an Olivia Munn situation where we're like, oh my God. Or even an Anna Kendra situation where I'm like, I think someone needs to have a talking to her about kindness. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. She's very successful and she's very hot and she knows it. And she thinks she's better than you because she is, honestly. I will say, I think we'll get into it later. I think that she is accidentally very selfish. I think that there are a lot of things that she says later on in the book that we'll get to that are like deeply tone deaf about like everything else outside of her own brain. (laughs) But I don't think she's evil. I don't think she's a bad person. I do think she's just annoying. And I do think she was raised that way. Like I do think her parents were like, be the best. And she was like, okay. She strikes me as a Gwyneth Paltrow type and like, 
I'm perfect. My life's perfect. And you could be perfect too if you just tried a little harder. So in May 1999, she's 17. She's studying for these board exams. There is not a prayer. She has every intention of passing these board exams to get into a program in Australia so she can be an aeronautical engineer. And yet nobody's really sure that she'll even pass. And she needs a scholarship to go to this school. And she acts like it was done and dusted. She had to take a month off school to full-time study with a private tutor. She mentions a couple times throughout this book that she had plans to become an aeronautical engineer as if she had graduated high school and gotten into a program. Maybe she graduated high school, but I don't think she even applied to the program. She never even took the board. So everybody's nervous and everybody's freaked out and she is very stressed. And she's at her family's country club one day when the local district commissioner at the time and his wife, Deepak and Anita, who are friends of my parents, said it just happened to be the night of the annual May Queen Ball. And Mrs. Shingal encouraged me to enter the competition saying I was pretty and smart and that's just what May Queens were supposed to be. I had never once considered the idea of competing for a beauty title. Sure, some boys followed me on my way to tutoring, presumably because they thought I was pretty. But I didn't really think of myself as someone who could legitimately ever enter a beauty contest. When I voiced my doubt, Mrs. Shingal, who was on the judges panel for the ball, responded, I've done this for a few years and I can tell from experience that if you sign up for this Priyanka, there's a good chance you can win. She enters, she wins. Everyone's like, my God, a beauty. So a few months later, she gets a phone call from the Miss India pageant saying that she has been selected to audition to represent North India in the Miss India competition. Here's the story that she claims of how that came to be. So all she had under her belt was this random country club pageant that she had won by entering that day. But she says she was entered against her knowledge by her mother at the behest of her brother. Yes. It was actually her 11-year-old brother who had entered her into this competition going up to his mother one day and saying, is Priyanka pretty? And her mom goes, I guess. And so according to her, what happened was he had a Feminina magazine that he was like, we should enter her in this pageant. Priyanka said it's because their house had two bedrooms, the brother's bedroom and the parent's bedroom. And when Priyanka moved back from America, she got the bedroom and her brother was moved into a makeshift bedroom that was actually the hallway. And she was like, I'm sure that my brother really just wanted me out of the house so that he could have the bedroom back. So he came up with this whole scheme. And luckily, Luckily, the scheme required professional headshots, and she had never gotten professional headshots, except for, luckily, that week, she literally had just gotten professional headshots, but for her aeronautical engineering program application, she needed headshots for that. In addition, when she got those headshots taken, the guy had her come back the next day to take modeling shots. So in fact, they had exactly the professional shots that they needed for this pageant that was not her idea, was not her mom's idea, but was her 11-year-old brother's idea as a prank. So do we (laughs) believe that Priyanka had no knowledge that she was being submitted for Miss India? I don't necessarily not believe that as much as I do believe that her mom did it. Okay. Maybe her brother came across the ad in the paper and was like, oh, what if Priyanka did this? And her mom was like, that's actually exactly what... But this idea that it was her brother as the motor, just because to have this story after the story about how Priyanka chose to go to the US for high school, right? it seems like the foundation has been laid that her mom is actually kind of like a wheeler and a dealer and is a real planner and a schemer. A real Chris Jen, if I've ever seen one. Yeah. But also, so she's cramming like crazy for these boards that nobody knows if she'll pass or not. And the audition is- it was the day before. The boards. And she has to go to Mumbai, which is five hours by train, get there the day before, stay in a hotel, spend a whole day. She's like, my mom just thought it would be a good distraction from all of my studying and take the pressure off. I don't think if they felt good about her doing the boards, they would be like, let's take a few of these critical days off to go audition for Miss India. I think they were like, I do not see aeronautical engineering in your future. You're so beautiful. This is the career path you need to be on. We're going to make it happen for you. I agree with that. I could see that her mom was probably pulling the strings because, yeah, I don't think that the day before one of the biggest exams of her life, they would be like, I guess you should just take a five-hour train ride, put on a beautiful dress, see what's what, come back, take your test in the morning when you're all fresh from that 10 hours on a train cumulatively. The other thing is her mom had been prepping her. They get there. It turns out she had the wrong kind of dress. And Priyanka's like, well, let's just go home. And her mom goes, no, let's go shopping. And so they go out and they get her the right dress. They come right back. Of course, she finds out a few days later that she had been selected to represent her region in the Miss India contest. But I just have this feeling that not necessarily that they were sure she'd fail her boards, but they were like, why don't we cast a wide net? It seems like you have a very particular strength and it's having the most beautiful face in this goddamn country. (laughs) And I also think that she had spunk because she says in this audition... She went to one of the judges and was like, well, how will I know if I get in? I don't really want to wait for a letter because I've got this big exam coming up and I need to know if I'm going to be taking it for real. So can you just text me if I'm in? 
And I think they found that so endearing and so interesting. Plus, she spoke English so well because of her time in America, which was a huge asset. Well, she actually thought it might be a hindrance because she spoke with an American accent. And in India, like the British English accent is considered a classier one, which fair enough. I think that too. Every time I watch Love Island, I say the way that these people are choking out words is very attractive. (laughs) Here also begins her personal propaganda in favor of why beauty pageants are actually not at all sexist or shallow. She goes, while beauty pageants are often viewed as superficial in the U.S. and a lot of other countries, they're generally more highly respected. And I do believe they're more important in other countries. I don't think that they are like different. I agree. In America, I mean, there was that running joke throughout Miss Congeniality that it's a scholarship contest, not just a beauty pageant. Here, she literally put all of her studies and all of her hopes of higher education aside to pursue this. And she goes, from what I've observed, pageants around the world tend to emphasize not only looks, as some American pageants seem to do, but also personality and eloquence. You need to be able to be confident and command attention when you speak, know what you're talking about, and be well-versed in the subjects you're addressing. This will prove very funny in five minutes. (laughs) For sure, you have to be a certain height and a certain weight, their standards. But if you impress the judges with intelligence, confidence, and compassion, that's what they'll focus on. I don't have time to fight her on this, but (laughs) you guys tell me, are events with swimsuit competitions about your intelligence, confidence, and compassion. When do you have time on stage to be compassionate? There is a question and answer section. The question is, are you compassionate? And if you say yes. But the fact that you have to be a certain weight to prove that you're compassionate is, I would say, the problem. To be like, listen, this is a contest about eloquence and compassion. However, no short bitches. So this was like a prelim in a hotel, basically. It was like being Miss New Jersey. Yes. And then she gets into Miss India. It's very similar to how Olivia Culpo had to win Miss Rhode Island before she could go on to win Miss USA. Exactly that. And then go on to win Miss Universe and then go on to win the heart of Nick Jonas. (laughs) Only there she lost to Miss World Priyanka Chopra. (laughs) So she wins. She goes to the Miss India pageant. There she is once again convinced that she is the ugliest duckling in the bunch. So she was in Mumbai for a month of beauty pageant boot camp. Her mom came and stayed with her and they figured out how to work it so that the hospital her and her dad had opened up was covered and Sid was taken care of. I guess the grandma was living with the family at the time to take care of Sid, who had really become an afterthought. January 15th, 2000. She wins Miss India World. The way it works is that out of the whole Miss India competition, they crown three winners. So there's a top five, two runners up, and then they have Miss India Universe, Miss India World, and Miss India Asia Pacific. And they go on to compete at the three bigger pageants, Miss World, Miss Universe, and Miss Asia Pacific. I will say it does sound like Priyanka came in second. The world is smaller than the universe. Objectively, yes. She also teases here. I'm, this is going to be a spoiler because we have to talk about this quote. She does end up winning Miss World. It's the only time in history that all three of the Miss India winners would go on to win their international pageants that year. And that is a huge fucking deal. Yeah. That like India conquered the fucking world that year in terms of hotness. But she says, so yes, Queen Bee, you're right. Who run the world? Girls. It is a woman-only competition, all three of them. I mean, to be like, girls run the motherfucking world at all of the female-only competitions (laughs) in the world. (laughs) If men are better than women, how come they've never won Miss India? (laughs) I guess she would have failed her boards. (laughs) So she cannot believe that she won. It was not even a thought in their damn minds. She has to stay there for a while. She's basically doing all the meet and greets. So she's running around, going to bank openings, cutting ribbons, meeting orphans, et cetera, et cetera. And having a fuck ton of coaching to prepare her for her Miss World pageant at the end of the year. Miss World is November 30th. So early November, she goes out there for more extra boot camp. They, once again, don't think she has an absolute shot in hell at winning. And here's a really important anecdote that I know you guys have been waiting on pins and needles to hear. After I made it through my own hairstyling, I decided I could use a quick touch-up. I asked to borrow a stylus curling iron. With all the congestion, I got jostled and accidentally burned my forehead with a hot metal. The skin scabbed, which meant I had to apply a ton of foundation to try to cover it up. That didn't fully work, so I added another form of camouflage. And now I can finally explain why I had that crazy tendril of hair swirling over my left eye. I had been wondering about that. Since November 30th, 2000. Yes. 
So she is competing in this Miss World pageant and basically is convinced that there's no way in hell she could win. Her friend had already won Miss Universe and she's like, well, how could we both win? She also says she had sudden hyper awareness of the number of people watching. Two billion people in 150 countries. Is that true? Okay. So in 2000, how many people were on the planet? It was like six billion at that time. I, I have no idea. So one third of the full population of the planet was watching that night. That's a lot. Good for her. Ton of eyes. So she gets to the final five and it's kind of losing her cool because that is a lot of stress. And for the question and answer segment, what they do is they have each of the five finalists write a question that will then be given to one of the other five finalists. She wrote, if ignorance is bliss, why do we seek knowledge? Good question. That is kind of a good question. You can't come up with one, can you? Yeah, mine would be, how much wood (laughs) could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? So her question is, the question asked to her, who do you think is the most successful woman living today and why? She gets nervous and then she launches into an answer that was like almost a joke. She said, there are a lot of people I admire, but one of the most admirable people is Mother Teresa. I admire her from the bottom of my heart for being so considerate, compassionate, and kind, giving up her life for so many people in India. Mother Teresa had at this point been dead for three years. And if you guys will remember, the question is the most successful woman living today and why? And also, if you'll recall, she said in other countries, it's not so much about what you look like. It's more about your ability to talk smartly. First of all, even if Mother Teresa was still alive, that's not a particularly profound answer. No. I admire her from the bottom of my heart for being so considerate, compassionate, and kind. Yeah, that's not success. How many times have you met a successful person who's compassionate and kind? So that question, she didn't answer it good. She did answer it technically with words. Technically, she did give an answer. She does still win. And this is the funniest line in the book. Her parents run up to the stage to congratulate her. And her mom says, what will happen to your studies now? I can't believe the mom is still thinking of studies. Like, shouldn't she have been just like washed with relief that now Priyanka never has to study again? The next morning it comes up that people may ask, is it fair that she won the title even though she answered the question objectively wrong? She answered a subjective question objectively wrong, (laughs) which is unique, but it doesn't matter. It turns out these things aren't really based on your answers to those questions. So they let her keep the crown. And thus begins the rest of her life. Her parents had actually booked tickets to Boston the next day, assuming she would lose and they could go visit family as sort of a condolence vacation. So the next day she is whisked away on her world tour. Her parents and Sid go off to Boston and then her parents get a call being like, are you guys ready for her India welcome home parade in two days? And her parents are like, what parade? And they're like, the Miss World Welcome Home Parade. Where the hell are you guys? And they're like, America. So her parents leave Sid in Boston and say, we'll come back for you eventually. And they just rush to the airport to try and get back to India as fast as possible. It's a two-day trip and they have two days to get there. They get to London and then they can't get on a flight to India. And a couple people overhear them and they realize what's going on. They boot two people from a flight and get her parents on a plane. And Priyanka (laughs) writes, I hope for the day when acts of simple kindness and shared humanity are as freely offered between our countries as they were offered that day by Mr. Malik and the two gentlemen who gave up their seats for my parents. It is kind that this airline person was like, this is something worth offering a voucher for, but nobody like reached into the depths of their heart to offer a kidney. Thus begins the next phase of her life, which is actress Priyanka, Bollywood star Priyanka. Immediately after winning Miss World, she is inundated with offers to do movies. She takes four different movie offers that year. Unfortunately, on a trip to London, she's feeling congested one day. And when she goes to the doctor, they're like, oh, you just have a polyp on your nose. It should be an easy surgery. Then what happens is something awful. She gets a very routine nose surgery. And would you believe she comes out of it with a completely different nose? And it's just not fair because everyone thinks she got a nose job, but she didn't. She got a botched nose surgery. A botched polyp removal where she says the bridge of her nose collapsed. The doctor also accidentally shaved the bridge of my nose. So it sounds like in removing the polyp, they tried to change the shape of her nose and in changing the shape of her nose, her nose changed shape. Anyway, it was this huge like media backlash. They called her Plastic Chopra. Two of the movies actually rescind their offer and one movie downgrades her to like supporting role. But nevertheless, nevertheless, she persisted. She gets multiple nose jobs in the next few years to try to get back to the original nose. And she is okay with her face now. She doesn't feel like it's somebody else looking in the mirror anymore. I wonder if she just got used to her nose job nose because it doesn't really look like her original nose. I also want to point out that six or seven years after this moment, her mom and her dad opened up a plastic surgery hospital. 
she says the bridge of her nose collapsed. That reads Michael Jackson already laying to me. That doesn't read slightly botched nose job. Dude, it's okay. You got a nose job. It's not a big deal. You can I'm just not mad at it. you. Nobody's mad at you. Nobody's mad. She does still start her film career with flying colors. It is interesting the way the film industry works in India. They churn out out movies and Bollywood is only a section of it. That's the Hindi movies, but there are a billion other little genres and states and languages. There's a lot going on there. They're turning out like 2000 movies a year. She herself would be in like four to six movies a year. She said it's not uncommon to be filming two to three movies at the same time. She also was like, they don't have the same weekend mindset. So she's like, we would just film for 10 straight days, take a couple days off, go back. It's a real culture shock when she comes to the U.S. and everybody's like grumbling about working on Saturdays. So the film industry in India very much revolves around men. It's all about the male leads, the male directors, the men in charge. So that was another thing that she learned pretty quick is that the men are going to put up a bit of a stink. The boys are divas. They're annoying. And she was like, whatever, I'm being paid to be here. So however they use my time is kind of on them. She has this funny comment where she says, the Bollywood system was known at the time for having insiders, people with generational ties to the business and outsiders, people who didn't. If you didn't have an insider's familiarity with the powerful people or the lifelong social bonds to fall back on, it was a struggle. You would have to work much harder to prove your talent and to earn the kinds of roles you wanted. I just think it's funny that she's like, so it's very different where I'm from. Where I'm from, if you know people in the business, it's helpful. We have this thing called nepotism. I will say, I think she has a crazy work ethic. It does sound like she's good at what she does. Usama was saying she's a very good actress. And of course, you can't trust a boy's opinion on a hot girl's anything. But yeah, it's like how my dad was like, Olivia Munn's actually a brilliant comedian. I also want to say that she is just a talented gal who picks up anything in a heartbeat. On her first film, she had to do this scene. It was this big wide shot where the timing of when the two characters reached each other was very important. And it turns out that she was deeply uncoordinated. And then something happened where they had to take a 10 day break in filming. So she enrolls in a 10 day dance course and comes back and just nails it. I will say she also took the 10 day dance course with her mom who she then mentions also did a post-grad degree in dance. And I'm like, I get it. Your parents are perfect. You come from a perfect family and you're the perfect spawn. So she works hard. She's succeeding. I like this quote because it really reveals the way that she speaks very powerfully, but about nothing. I mean, that Mother Teresa quote was actually like a perfect preview of who she is as a speaker overall. She goes, The thing about favoritism and patriarchy is that they make it an unfairly steep climb for a large number of talented, deserving people, whatever the field. Having experienced that long, hard climb myself made me want to be a part of the community that's working to make it easier for those to follow. We can't choose the family we were born into, but we can choose our actions. We all want to take care of the people we are closest to, those sitting at our table. But is there a world in which those who are blessed with more might build a larger table rather than a higher fence? I don't know. I mean, it's a nice sentiment, but it's like an absolutely nothing sentence. (laughs) So she mentions earlier in the book when she's helping her parents do some pro bono work in some more underprivileged areas of India, the towns, they were like, don't help these sick girls help the boys. If we only have limited resources, we have to save the boys. And it was her first experience with men being prioritized over women. And she brings up that experience all the time being like, it had literally never once occurred to me that other people prioritize boys over girls. And then working in the film industry, it comes up a couple more times. And she's like, it was just so mind boggling to me that women aren't equal. And it is interesting to me. I agree with her that it sucks. But the way that like every time it hits her, it's like she's realizing it for the first time and she just can't believe it. It's like, yeah, dude, I don't know. She does have a way of saying things like they're being said for the first time, even this. So these are the tips she picks up from studying her co-actors and the director. She goes, first, they truly listened in every one of the scenes rather than just waiting to say their lines. Acting is primarily reacting truthfully in the moment. I think that that's like one of the oldest schools of acting. It's almost like a hack joke to be like acting is reacting. But here she is giving you the advice. The other piece of advice is that people are complex. But so she talks about a lot her personal response to the sexism in the industry of the way that girls are interchangeable. She has this one experience where she signs the contract for a role to be the leading lady in a film. And the star literally just comes into her trailer and he's like, ah, I told this other girl she could do it actually. And the other girl is just his girlfriend. Yeah. And so her way of combating this is by not focusing on the sexy roles and trying to take more interesting, challenging roles. So not just being the girlfriend or the babe. She takes a role that is quite a risk where she plays kind of a bitch. She wins the Filmfare Award. This one for, quote, best actor in a negative role, which I guess they do co-ed awards, which is nice. But it's so funny that the way that they're divided is unlikable character, 
hot character, cool character. I like that. I actually think that makes more sense. I don't know why boy actors and girl actors can't compete. I've always thought they should divide it by age. Interesting. I always thought it was so embarrassing that adults would lose to sometimes children. For the adults' sake, take the children out of the running and give them their own little thing. So after a lot of success taking these more challenging roles, when she's 25 years old, she has six bombs in a row. And then she does the riskiest thing of all. She does a female-led movie. All the movies are led by men. And to do a female-led movie is kind of you saying, I think my career is on the way out. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do this kind of final hurrah. It's a huge success. She wins awards for it. And then in addition to doing this acting success movie, she's also in a box office hit. So she's back on top, baby. Don't you worry about our girl Priyanka. She always finds her way out. So at this point in the book, she takes time to talk about the commercial she does for the fairness creams, which are creams that whiten your skin. She writes about it as if she didn't do it. Like she took a stand against them, but she did in fact do it. And it's very tricky. And it's very interesting. So she knows that what she did was wrong, but she doesn't fully admit that she even did it. She says that to be an actor in India, you have to align yourself with brands. That's how your acting career grows. And it's the same as here. If you want to be an A-lister, you can't just be in movies. You have to do A-listy things. But she goes, as my popularity grew, the brands came calling from Nikon to Nokia to Samsung and Pepsi to Sunsilk and Tagger. I was proud of the roster of brands that I endorsed, but one important category remained unfilled, beauty and skincare. It's just so funny the way she was like, well, I had to do beauty and skincare. I only had 19 of the biggest brands in the world. She talks to this book about how she had been bullied growing up in India for having darker skin. So the way she says she got into this deal is that... So you sign with like a beauty parent company basically and then work with all of their products. And she's like, one of their products is going to be a lightning cream because everybody had a lightning cream. And then she talks about how pain she felt as a child when she was made fun of for her skin tone by her like family members and then she goes at this point in my life I had evolved enough on my own inner journey to reevaluate both the implicit and explicit cultural message I absorbed over my lifetime my aversion to all forms of discrimination towards girls and women color being fundamental had become more pronounced and I knew that I didn't want to be a part of any campaign that perpetuated any feelings of insecurity or diminished in our sex so I chose to take a definitive stance and distance myself from this archaic cultural norm I haven't done a skincare campaign in India since that time almost a decade ago. So she did do one and then take a definitive stance against it after. But the way she writes this, it reads like she said no to the campaign. Because she's like, I was offered this campaign. I don't believe in this kind of thing. And I am very against what it means. So I will never again do this. (laughs) Yeah. And she does say that she's deeply sorry for doing it. It's a well PR'd, tiny little three paragraph essay. Okay. Here's something that I I'm worried about. I think she thinks she's funny. Why do you think that? Because she'll say LOL about things that she says. The other thing is she uses (laughs) hashtags throughout this book as a punchline. And I just want to say, if you're about to write a memoir, don't use like a contemporary medium in the memoir. Like leave your hashtags out of your book. This literally is not a tweet. It's a memoir. Elevate it. Okay. So here's the thing is that even when this book was written... Like six months ago. Hashtags were no longer a thing. So I think that that is part of her own personal boomer-esque way of trying (laughs) to be like, I have a young boyfriend and I'm young. Tough to hear. That's how I felt about it, at least. So she talks about how hard she'd worked to gain all of these professional relationships and really work her way up in the film industry in India. And she says, who knew that my career would take another sharp left and I would, in essence, have to go back to walking into a room and introducing myself all over again. As they say, you want to tell God a joke? Tell her your plans. I did not know she called God a her. That's also not the saying. It's, do you want to make God laugh? Tell her your plans. (laughs) Like, God's not getting a one-up on you here. You're like, we're so successful in one industry that you went on to become successful in the same industry on the other side of the world. It's not, like, funny. God's laughing, baby. (laughs) This was after Slumdog Millionaire and the song Jai Ho had become an enormous success in the United States. And they were like, the way that we took, like, U.S stuff and made it popular in India. I wonder if we could do the same and bring an Indian star over to the U.S. through music. They wanted to have a East meets West pop sensation. And the guy who was doing this had seen Priyanka in a movie and liked her. And they were like, can she sing? And just as luck would fucking have it, she had recently sung something live and they had that on tape from the first person they called to be like, can this woman sing? So then they flew her out to London and started working on a demo and she worked with truly some of the biggest producers on the whole damn planet and really nothing came of it. I mean, she was working with Will I Am. She was working with Matthew Coma, Hilary Duff's husband. 
Jimmy Iovine, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He started Interscope Records. He was like, this is going to be easy. You're a smash hit. He believed in her. So this is why we know who Priyanka is for the most part is because they were PRing the shit out of her. They were like, we are going to work from the ground up and get you into every major event. You will be at the Met Gala. You will be at the Grammys. This is going to be a thing. So while they were working on figuring out her sound, they were also working on dropping her into pop culture over here. And they had gotten her an acting agent because they were like, I'm sure your music career is going to pop off and then you'll want to do more acting over here. The music career did not take. The songs themselves did not pop off. They gave her one of every kind. I think in 2014, she had an EDM hit where she sang, I can't make you love me in an EDM remix. (laughs) Yeah. And her songs did do well over in India. They were like, that's our girl rocking out. But in the US, I truly had no idea that she'd ever done music until I read this book. So, And at the same time, unfortunately, her dad, who she loved so much, had gotten liver cancer. It should have been an easy removal, but unfortunately something went wrong during the surgery. And because of it, he got very, very sick and they had to transfer him to the US. And this started like a five-year journey of being in remission and then getting sick again and being remission. She talks about this in a separate chapter, which actually I was very moved by. I mean, she does love her dad and her parents do love her and they'd like done everything for her career. And she talks about him being so sick and flying all the way to Vancouver to go to an award ceremony with her and Mm -hmm. like mustering the strength to walk on stage and accept the award with her. It was really sweet. I honestly cried. I didn't quite cry, but I did think it was lovely. She looks back and she says while he was dying, her parents encouraged her to focus on her career. So at the time that he was sick, she was working in Bollywood, in London, and in LA and in New York. So she was constantly traveling and on a plane. And it sounded like she had no time for anything. I can't imagine that she had time to see him. And she regrets it now looking back in retrospect that she didn't take that time and sit with him in the hospital and reminisce about their childhood. But she's like, but what they wanted was for me to push forward. And she goes, I was accustomed to always moving forward, always going on to the next thing rather than facing my feelings. But as soon as he died, she just kept working. She went immediately to a film. She was like, it'll just help me forget. His funeral was over the weekend. And on Monday, she went into a film. From my perspective today, I see that it had been my method for coping with pain and grief ever since my boarding school days. And now more than 20 years later, I was still doing the same thing. I had no tools, no internal mechanism, no experience that could help me deal with such devastation. She has this bizarre chapter to me about how she's like, you know, it's crazy because I didn't seek grief therapy or counseling, even though if one of my friends had been in my position, I would have been like, why don't you just go get help? And she's like, and then I went launched into, and she's very careful to say, not a depression. She goes, I did not have clinical depression because I was grieving somebody. She did have like a year where she didn't leave the house and gain 20 pounds because all she did was hide inside and cancel plans and lose all her friends. Here's the thing. It wasn't just a year. That year, when she finally was like, I had to change my life. I'm too sad and I have to stop grieving was 2017 and he died in 2013. So she then had four years where she was paralyzed by grief. And when she wasn't working, she's like, my career continued to thrive. But when I wasn't working, I was home alone, crying by myself. And that went on for four years. And she's like, but it wasn't depression. And then the way she eventually fixes it is she goes, I started changing my routine. Like normally I'd go home and just sit on the couch, but I started just sitting in the kitchen. That's a tip for anybody suffering from not clinical depression, but a four year grief cycle that absolutely paralyzes you with sadness. Try sitting in your kitchen. Beautiful. So in the US, her music career is not really popping off, but she does have a TV and film agent and she gets a talent deal with ABC Network because they're like, we think you're rad. We'd like to work with you. Here are a bunch of scripts that she'll then have to audition for and then potentially get a pilot and then potentially get to air. So it does seem like a little bit of a leg up on the normal trying to break into the US TV industry because she isn't coming from out of nowhere. She's one of the most successful actors in India at this point. It's not like she's brand new, but she does sort of get treated brand new. And I think that that's why we have this weird view of Priyanka because she came in kind of owning the space and we were just like, who are you and why didn't you knock? And it's like, because she'd already earned her way past that somewhere else. The people on the inside knew. So she says her favorite script that she read was for a show called Quantico, which luckily when she auditioned, they loved her. And then luckily it got picked up to pilot and then luckily it went to series. So it does kind of look like from this, she like picked one thing and then that one thing worked. I don't know that that's actually how it happened. She also was in Baywatch at that time. Yeah. And then she just starts getting invited to the Met Gala pretty immediately. (laughs) I just want to take a moment and talk about a Quantico backlash that she experienced because I think it's another funny Priyanka PR move. There was one episode where a Hindu extremist terrorist tries to blow up Manhattan with a twist of blaming the attack on Pakistan. 
She says, there's a huge outcry about it in India, attacking ABC for what people felt was an offensive plot line and attacking me for agreeing to be in it. I got worldwide backlash for being part of a plot line that involved Hindus as terrorists. But she goes, but I wasn't a writer or a producer and I didn't have any control or input in the storyline. Not to mention the fact that we'd have villains of every ethnicity trying to blow up New York over the course of the show. And then they had to come out and be like, Priyanka didn't write this, leave her alone. I just think it's another funny way of people were like, people were mad at me, but it wasn't my fault. In the same way that she's like, people think it's bad that I did fairness cream, but I would never do a fairness cream. I think fairness creams are evil and that's why I will never do a fairness cream ad again. Listen, I think it's awful to have Hindus be extreme terrorists and that's why I didn't write it. <laughs> I mean, it is really impressive that she is starring on an ABC primetime show. She says she was the first South Asian actor to headline a primetime drama. And she does do a really great job of hyping up other South Asian actors and comedians. I mean, she does have a really nice little chunk about her teen years in Iowa and how she would watch TV. And there was certain characters that she kind of related to just because of the life moments. But she would have loved to see a South Asian woman in the FBI on TV. While she was doing Quantico, I want to point out she was filming Quantico in Canada and flying to India over the weekends to do Bollywood films still. She really never stopped. The bitch has a work ethic that you cannot question. But she says it was time for her to get a boyfriend. She said that she'd dated a little bit in the past. She didn't have too much time for it because of the 20-hour flights she was taking twice a week. But she said that the problem in her past relationships was that they would start out fine and then she would really lose herself to the relationship because she was so busy and she felt guilty. She would prioritize their needs over hers. She would put a lot of her work aside to make her partner happier. Kind of a textbook case, to be honest. I have to laugh at this as well. Okay. Because the way she spins everything is just so funny. She goes, I had never considered that maybe the problem, or at least part of the problem, lay in me. It's so crazy to her that she can't get a relationship to work because she thinks of herself as so successful and problem-solving in her professional life. Part of what I realized was that while I was bold and fierce in my professional life, in my personal life, where I spent way too much time looking after the needs or what I perceived as the needs of the men I dated, I was the exact opposite. And she's like, how could I be so different in my professional and private lives? And then it occurs to her that she's not so different. And she goes, maybe my professional do my best attitude somehow bled into my private behavior. Was my reluctance to end a relationship that I hadn't been happy in for some time related to a fear that I hadn't done my best to make it work? That I hadn't done absolutely everything in my power, in fact. I have always been a solution finder professionally and don't hesitate to take control when a problem needs fixing. The problem was that I'd been too good of a girlfriend. And I was actually so successful at being a girlfriend that I was deeply miserable. <laughs> oh, Chojo. New Year's 2017. She's out with her best friend from childhood and her husband. And they're like, when are you going to get a boyfriend? When are you going to get a husband? And she decides to write down a manifestation plan of the exact man she wants to meet. This is what she wants in a man. One, honesty. Two, the value of family. Three, he had to take his profession very seriously. Four, she wanted someone creative and had the imagination to dream big with her. And five, she wants someone with who had drive and ambition. Those last three things all feel like the same to me. <laughs> Honesty and family. And then she's like, I want someone to have a career. I want them to dream big in the career. And I want them to be ambitious about their career. <laughs> okay. And let me tell you something. By the end of the next year, she would be married to Nick Jonas. Manifestation works. Have you guys written something down and put it in your pocket yet? You can meet Nick Jonas any minute now. Let's talk about the story of her and Nick Jonas. So years prior, I think 2015, Nick Jonas had just randomly DM'd her on Twitter being like, people say we should meet. And I guess it was because his brother, Kevin, aka The Dud, and some other actor who knew them both was like, you guys would like each other probably. And I think he had seen her photo and was like, damn, Priyanka. So he was 22 and he shooted his shot. And she was like, lol, cool. They kind of DM'd or texted or whatever for a while. And then in January 2017, Nick invites her to be his date to President Obama's farewell party at the White House. Unfortunately, she's busy. <laughs> yeah, I guess like shooting went long or something. She's like, listen, if there's a bomb at that White House, I have to be on air at Quantico to find it. Then in 2017, in the spring... She and Nick Jonas are both invited to the Met Gala as guests of Ralph Lauren. So they're both dressed by Ralph. She's wearing a trench coat with a 25-foot train. They go together, not really as a date, but because they'd had this multi-year flirtation over the internet, it was a little bit datey. 
But they hadn't chosen to do that. Ralph Lauren had just dressed them both. So there's that photo that I think you've probably seen. She's in that gorgeous long trench coat and he's trying to stay out of the way. They're not dating yet. That's crazy to me. Yeah. I guess because that photo was used so often when people were writing about them dating. Because I think it was the only photo of them that existed. That makes sense. They went on a date afterwards and they had a really good time and they ended up back at her apartment where her mom was. And they talked to 130, but it ended with a pat on the back. And then they were just both so busy that they didn't get to go on another date. Then the next year at the Met Gala, they're not there together this time, but they both are there. They hang out at the Met Gala. Then she goes to Bangladesh for a UNICEF thing. And he messages her and is like, your work is inspiring. And she's like, wow, that's so nice. And so then she goes back to LA and they become inseparable. First, he invites her to Beauty and the Beast and she goes with a friend. And then the next day, it's another thing. At the end of the week, it's Memorial Day weekend and he's having a party on a boat and she wants to go, but she's busy. She has a work thing. And so she goes and she's with her friends and she wants to keep hanging out, but she has to leave. And she feels so sad. And Nick takes her aside and goes, I'm not going to ask you to stay. Not because I don't want you to, but because if you could cancel, you'd have done it already. And she had made kind of a stink about it. She's like, well, if I had a reason to stay, I would. But clearly there's no reason because no one's telling me to. He goes, I'll never be that guy, Pri. You've worked so hard for so many years to be where you are. And you know what's best for your career. I will never stand in your way. But I know that you're feeling some FOMO here. So I'm going to take all your friends out to dinner while you're at your meeting and we'll wait for you to come back. Then the next week, they go to Jersey to go to like his best friend's wedding. She says, there I met Denise and Kevin Sr., his parents, his younger brother, Frankie, the only brother I hadn't met, and his best friend. So within months, they were engaged. Two months, to be exact. Yeah, at the end of July, she has to go back to India and he comes with. He takes her mom out to lunch and asks for Priyanka's hand. She says that she was so nervous about Nick and her mom being out to lunch alone together that she sent someone from her security team to take photos of them. She goes, okay, to spy on them so I could study their body language using my Quantico skills. Hashtag not proud. That's bad, Pri. <laughs> That's really weird. So that July, which is when her birthday is, they're in Crete for vacation the day after he proposes to her. They get married based on their auspicious time, which is December 2nd, 2018. They have like a four day long, first a Christian ceremony, then a Hindu ceremony. All of his friends and family come. It sounds like elaborate and honestly fun. Yeah. And cute. They started technically dating in May and they were married by December. And as someone who's said that her relationships tend to be good for the first few years and then get bad, it's like, ugh, I guess it's getting bad right about now. <laughs> it's also weird how little they've known each other by the time she was writing this book and how baked into the book he is. He's mentioned in a lot of chapters being like, oh, Nick has a great story about this. He'll tell you in his memoir. In the preface, she says something about how Nick is the most mature, insightful, thoughtful person she's ever met. And I'm like, Nick Jonas? I mean, I've definitely dated people for like a couple of months and been like, you are so mature and insightful. And then after a year, I'm just like, actually. She talks a lot about how she loves control. She's like a real control freak. And Nick was this whirlwind love that wiped her off her feet. And I do wonder if part of what she likes about him is that he's 10 years younger than her. And so she can maintain the upper hand and like he won't get in the way of her career. I do feel like she's a workaholic. He's afraid of opening up. She talks about how Nick really brought down the walls and that in previous relationships, she tried to keep them very private and hidden, but with him, he didn't care. And to her, that was very freeing that they would just go to a movie or go to a restaurant. But I do wonder if she likes that ultimately she's the older one with the upper hand. Probably. So this book ends with her sort of being like, now we're decorating a house. And it makes me think about how my life is a house and what all the rooms would be. And then she just goes on to kind of brag about her other accomplishments where she is a tech investor. She invested in Bumble India she has her own production company that does projects in India and the U.S. that her mom runs. She brags about her like work with UNICEF, which is interesting. I mean, she does have a big heart. And as we can see from the upcoming television show, The Activist, she wants to share what she's learned and what she has. I just don't think that she has good critical thinking skills to know what that means. I wouldn't say that. I don't know. The way she writes about some of the stuff in the UNICEF chapter, I'm just like, what are you saying? It's very Princess of Genovia vibes to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels very PR. It feels very guarded. It has like a Catherine Middleton vibe to me of, I'm going to say all the right things. To be like the person I think that's most successful is Mother Teresa. It feels very playing it safe, playing it very PR. It's very benevolent ruler. Yes. I, I think she's a smart woman and a hardworking woman, but I also think she's extremely guarded. This book was deeply not vulnerable or interesting. It really felt like a first person Wikipedia account. It was 
honestly like a 240 page resume with a little bit of personal intrigue. What are your final thoughts on our friend Chojo? I feel like I've met a few women like her in my life. Like I do think there is a type of person who was raised to believe that they are like kind of better than everyone, but they also are better looking and more successful than everyone. So it's never been a belief that was particularly questioned. I think she's not a bad or malicious person. I don't think this was a particularly interesting book. Even dating Nick Jonas, I think she wants to date a man who worships her. And I do think she likes to be a bit above everybody. And God bless her. She is. I mean, she is much prettier than most people. And she did. I mean, India and the US, those are two pretty big markets. Two pretty big markets. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is I think I didn't really have an understanding of why we really knew who she was and why she has this air of importance about her. And then reading this book, I was like, oh, she has accomplished a fuck ton of shit. I think that there are certain things that are very wishy-washy in this book. I think the nose job thing, I think a couple of different things that we read, I'm just like, okay, Miss Perfect. There's a real after school special vibe to it. Yes. Like I was in beauty pageants because I was so eloquent. And even though my answer was literally wrong, it was never about how beautiful I was. But I also did kind of gain a a respect for her work ethic and her career. Yeah, same. I also think it would have been a bit more fun if I like knew about Indian pop culture, just because I think all of her good name drops and all the people she came up with, that probably would have been fun if any of those names resonated for me. Also her dating chapter, she's like, I won't get into specifics. I think if I knew those specifics and could apply it, I'd have more fun. But yeah, that being said, I really do feel like she was very much having a moment, especially coming off the Nick Jonas wedding. And this was just like a capitalization on it. It was just like make as much money as you can. I think a lot of celebrities wrote memoirs during the pandemic because it was like a way to make money without having to go to a production set. It was a good time to sit down and write that memoir you'd been saying you'd write. Yeah. And I do think that she pretty much states that she's going to do another one due to the fact that this one is unfinished. I am absolutely horrified by her tattoo on the cover that says daddy's little girl on her hand. Anyway, thanks Priyanka for giving us this memoir this week. And thank you to the Wormies for listening. We love you so much. If you want even more juice, subscribe to our Patreon where we release a bonus episode every single Thursday and If you want to support us for free, you can drop a little five-star review on iTunes. We love you guys. Love you. Bye.